Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, be turning your copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 13. Psalm chapter 13, and as you're turning there, we invite any children who may be participating in our children's class, you can make your way there to that back room where the volunteers will be there to greet you and to instruct you in God's Word there in that context this morning. We are uh, continuing through a selection of Psalms this summer, and so we are in Psalm 13 this morning, Psalm chapter 13. So let me read this psalm for us, and then we will pray and ask for the Lord's help, and then we will dive into the truth of God's Word together. So Psalm 13, beginning in verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together. Father, right now we want to just once more take a moment and pause and quiet our hearts. And we pray that you would do that among us this morning. That you would just quiet our hearts, prepare our minds, our hearts, our souls to receive the truth of your word this morning. Father, we acknowledge that we are only here this morning because of the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Jesus. Even this gathering here this morning has been purchased by Jesus on the cross, and it is a good blood-bought gift for us this morning. So we're thankful for your church. We're thankful for your people that you have called together this morning. And Father, we're thankful that you have sent your spirit to dwell in us, to awaken us, to give us understanding of the truth of your word. And so every week, we just want to proclaim our gratitude and thankfulness for what you have already done for us and in us that allows us to be here together this morning under the truth of your word, receiving it, understanding it, and being changed by it. And so, Father, we ask you to do what you have already promised to do, that you would be at work in your people by the power of your Spirit through the truth of your Word. Father, as we get into Psalm 13 specifically, I just, I pray that it would be effective in us. Father, there are many people in this room who are going through a difficult season, who are struggling with despair or sorrow or even depression. And if They're not dealing with it now. They very likely uh, may deal with it in the near future. And so I pray that this psalm would equip us, that it would make us ready to know how to respond to those moments of darkness that can wash over our souls. And we pray that you would use this psalm, this truth of your word, to help us battle through those seasons together, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, and that you would use the truth of your word to light up our eyes this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of the greatest heroes of the faith throughout history have struggled with overwhelming feelings of depression and despair. 
Charles Spurgeon is someone who uh, many of you, if not most of you, are familiar with. He was a preacher in London, a very well-known preacher, author, scholar. Was popularly known as a jovial, happy man. He was seen to be funny, yet powerful in the pulpit. But even Charles Spurgeon had significant battles with depression throughout various phases and stages of his life. Early on in Spurgeon's preaching ministry, when he was only 22 years old, preaching to thousands of people in a a crowded building, someone thought it would be funny to pull what they saw as a prank, which was actually a great evil that they did, and they yelled out, fire, in the middle of the room. Everyone scattered, stampeded, trampled, and seven people were killed in that. Twenty-plus other people were seriously injured. And Spurgeon took it on himself. He felt at some level responsible for it. In many ways, he never fully recovered from the emotional turmoil of that day. His wife, in fact, said, quote, My beloved's anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter in her throne. And we sometimes fear that he would never preach again. And then when he turned 33, he began to have significant health issues that hindered his ability to preach as much as he had been, as much as he wanted to, and it drove him into even deeper sadness and despair and depression. But throughout all of it, throughout all of it, he continued to fight to keep his eyes on Jesus. He continued to lean on his belief in God's purposes for his life and God's promises that he had made to him. And his experiences gave him a deep compassion for others who would share his struggles. In fact, he wrote to his students who also wanted to one day be preachers. And this is what he said to his students, quote, Knowing by most painful experience what deep depression of spirit means, being visited therewith at seasons by no means few or far between, I thought it might be consolatory to some of my brethren if I gave my thoughts thereon that younger men might not think that some strange thing had happened to them when they became for a season possessed by melancholy, and that sadder men might know that one upon whom the sun has shone right joyously did not always walk in the light. Spurgeon wanted to let them know they could get through these dark days, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Of course, Spurgeon is not the only well-known servant of Christ who had such struggles. We could look at Augustine or Martin Luther or David Brainerd. David Brainerd struggled tremendously with depression. Jonathan Edwards published David Brainerd's journals and or his journal and said this about Brainerd. He was, by his constitution and natural temper, so prone to melancholy and dejection of spirits. But that Mr. Brainerd's temper or constitution inclined him to despondency is no just ground to suspect or question his extraordinary devotion. Because what you find in the pages of Brainerd's journal is a man after God's own heart. A man who passionately wanted Christ to be glorified among the unreached peoples. And it's because of David Brainerd's journal that for many point to his journal as, as the kind of foundational bed of the modern missions movement because it was William Carey reading that journal who was inspired to, to push people to the nations and through him, Adoniram Judson. And here this David Brainerd who struggled with depression and despondency his entire life was used in powerful ways by God. Same, of course, was true of Charles Spurgeon. This didn't make their emotional or mental suffering any less real or any less painful, but nonetheless, God used them. Godly, devoted, faithful men and women of God will face seasons of overwhelming grief, sadness, 
and even at times, some will struggle with depression. And I want to just say this publicly and clearly, because I, I don't want anyone in this room to think you have to hide your emotional struggles in a dark corner. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. We want you to have the safety and comfort to know that you can talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ about your emotional struggles, the despondency of your soul, the darkness that may sweep over you from time to time. And you are not less than because you battle with sorrow or because you battle with depression. We will not condemn you, but by God's grace, we will come alongside you and walk with you and Lord willing, be used by God to lighten your spirit. We want to show sympathy toward you where you are. But of course, we don't want you to stay there. And that's what Psalm 13 is all about. It's why Psalm 13 is such an important psalm for us this morning. This is what King David is crying out for in Psalm 13. I mean, earlier we listed some of these people who struggle with depression, these heroes of the faith. And we can add King David to that list He struggled with it. If you read the Psalms, it is evident on the pages of David's writing that he struggled with sorrow and angst and despair throughout his life. And he had many good reasons to have those struggles. David did not have an easy life. It's easy to look at him as this royal king who had everything he wanted, but he went through some very, very dark days. Now, we don't know exactly in what context or at what time David penned the words of Psalm 13, but we know the testimony of his life and all the times that he was in a difficult situation because of his sin, because of his enemies, or whatever it may have been. There were multiple episodes in David's life where he dealt with feeling abandoned or forgotten by God. And so what you have in Psalm 13 is the prayerful cry of a man who desperately wants to move from despair to hope. It's what he's crying out for God to do in his life. I mean, just think about some of the things David had to deal with. Early in his life, before he was king, he had just this incredible military success. In fact, he was so successful that King Saul became jealous of him and was constantly chunking spears at him or chasing him down in the wilderness, trying to take him out, going from campsite to campsite, trying to avoid the wrath of King Saul. And then once he finally became king officially, he sinned in grievous ways. He forced himself on a married woman, Bathsheba. Then he had her husband murdered. And because of that, David had to face the judgment of God. And he lost the child that Bathsheba uh, was going to give birth to because of his sin. Great angst, despair, and sorrow was over David in those days. And then later, one of David's own sons, Absalom, killed Uh, one of David's other sons, because that son had raped one of their sisters, right? Just a broken, terrible situation in their family. And then to add grief to grief, Absalom ends up conspiring and manipulating his way to the throne. And David has to flee Jerusalem. He is unseated from his throne and he is in the wilderness away from the throne while his son Absalom sits on the throne, which caused great confusion for David because God had promised David. He said, when you die, your offspring will inherit your throne, but not till you lay down and sleep and I will establish your throne forever. Of course, we know from first, uh, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 7 that God was telling David what would be in his future as the royal line passed down until it came to King Jesus, that it would be established forever. The only way for the throne of a man to be established forever is that the divine Son of God one day sits on that throne in the line of David. But here he is, cast out, not understanding what God is doing. 
Why do you have me out here while my evil, wicked, rebellious son sits on my throne? And even when David finally is able to overthrow Absalom and come back to Jerusalem, he ends up issuing a census of the people in direct defiance of God and therefore once again facing God's judgment because of his sin. In each of these seasons, in each of these seasons of David's life, he was undone with grief and sorrow and sadness, either because of his sin, because of his loss, because of his sense that God had abandoned him, that God had given up on the promises that he had made to David. And so when we read the Psalms of David, what we are often reading is the poetic journal of a man who is bearing the despair of his soul. And that is, again, exactly what is happening in Psalm 13. He is bearing his soul to God in sorrow and agony. But as we make our way through Psalm 13, we will see that David doesn't stay there. David moves from agony and despair to hope and praise. From agony and despair to hope and praise. So that, of course, is what God desires for all of us who find ourselves in seasons of darkness. So, so what I want us to do, Lord willing, this morning is as we move through Psalm 13, I want Psalm 13 to instruct us and help us move from despair to hope. So how do we do that? How does Psalm 13 help us move from despair to hope and confidence in God? Well, I think we're going to see three things we need to do in those moments. Number one, we've got to be honest with God. We must be honest with God. Number two, we should ask for eyes of hope. Ask for eyes of hope. Number three, remember God's character. And number four, declare his goodness. So let's begin with the first step, which is we need to be honest with God. Look again at verses one and two with me. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So let's just first acknowledge the most obvious but really important thing about Psalm chapter 13. Who is David talking to? He's talking to God. He's talking to the Lord. He is communicating his heart to his Lord and King, the God of heaven. He's crying out to God. And I want to be sure that we feel the depths of the sorrow and agony of David's heart in these moments. Verse 1, David says that he feels abandoned by God, right? Will you forget me forever? Right? That's, that's a terrifying feeling to think that perhaps God could have forgotten about you that he's forgotten the promises that he made to you. That's where David is in verse 1. That's where he is mentally and emotionally. And it's not an exaggeration, right? It's so easy to read over these verses and to just blow through them and think David's just being poetic and flowery with his language. No, no, this is an expression of a, an inspired, divine expression of a man's soul that is in the dark depths of despair. And we should not make light of it. In fact, he says it feels so long since God has been near to him that it seems like it's going to be forever. From David's perspective, it seems that God has just continually been absent from him. And you even notice the second line of verse 1. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? Right? It's this, he, he sees, he feels, he feels that God is intentionally keeping himself from David. Right? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you intentionally keep yourself away from me? And then he says, how long must I take counsel? Fascinating line. Because in our modern culture, that's what the world tells us we ought to want to do, right? 
We should want to take counsel on our own soul. We're going to find ourselves, right? We're going to find our true selves, talk to ourselves, take counsel on ourselves. That's the most important thing. For David, that's the most terrifying reality possible, is to be isolated to taking counsel in your own soul and to be cut off from God. See, David feels there's this thick, impenetrable wall between himself and God in these moments, and he is left to take counsel with only his own soul. Further, he says in verse 2 that he has sorrow in his heart all the day. There is no relief from his agony and grief. When he wakes up until he lays down his head, his heart lies in darkness. Look, there may have been times in your life that you have felt that way, when it felt like the sorrow, the grief, the darkness would never lift. You lay down and you are just overwhelmed with sadness and you wake up as the sun shines in your room and it makes no difference. Your heart is still overwhelmed with agony and despair and sadness. That is where David was. And maybe you felt that way when you lost someone who was close to you, someone who was close to you died or Maybe you felt that way when either you or someone close to you received a terrible medical diagnosis or someone you loved received a terminal medical diagnosis and you just feel like there is no hope and you are overwhelmed with sadness or maybe it's been through financial despair or you've lost your job and you just can't see a path forward and you don't even want to get out of bed in the morning because you don't know what next steps to take. Sometimes it's even because of sinful actions on your part. And your heart is filled with sorrow because you know you've rebelled against God because you've known you've acted in a wicked and evil way and now you're going to have to face the consequences and you're overwhelmed with grief and sadness. And yet other times, I mean, let's be honest, at other times that unrelenting sorrow has no specific reason at all. This is where David is. It is a sorrow that is intense, it is deep, and he feels no relief from it all day long. And if we skip ahead a bit to verse 3, you see David's calling out for help because he says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is the depth of his despair. He feels close to dying. He is so overwhelmed with grief and agony. And to pile heartache onto heartache, he also sees his enemies being exalted over him, which makes no sense to him because of the promises that God has made to him. So he is He is just overwhelmed with sorrow and despair. He feels that he's on the verge of death. He is a broken man. But here's the key question. What does David do with his brokenness? He tells it to God. Even when he feels God is distant, even when he feels God has forgotten him, even when he feels like God has forgotten him forever, even when he feels like he's having to take counsel in his own soul and there's a wall between him and God, even when he's at the very depths of his agony and despair, what does he do? He just bears his soul to his loving father. He doesn't hold back. He just fully expresses the anguish of his heart. And this is the model we need to follow because look, God knows it anyway. (laughs) He knows what you're feeling. He knows what you're thinking. So just be honest with him. Just tell him, right? I think so often we are fearful to be honest with God about our struggles. But if you read the Psalms, if you read... Not just Psalm 13, but many, many other psalms, which are the divine inspired prayer book of God. If we follow the model of the psalms, we ought to bear our soul to our Heavenly Father. We ought to be honest with Him. Because when we do so, when we bear our soul to Him, we're honest before Him, we're simply saying to Him, Look, we trust you. 
We trust you. We trust your goodness and your promises. We trust that you can handle our grief and our uncertainty in these moments of darkness. Look, it is so important to remember that when you pray, God does not want a performance. Let me say that again. When you pray, God does not want a performance. God wants you to be honest. He wants you to plead from your heart. He knows it all anyway. He's not waiting for you to say what you think he wants to hear. You can bear your soul to the God of heaven. Notice with me, however, even in his brokenness and darkness, David's even, even then he's demonstrating his love and affection for the Lord. I mean, do you see this? His greatest angst and despair is that God is far from him. As believers in Christ, right, as those for whom Christ has died, right, we have and for whom Christ sits at the right hand, interceding for us at the right hand of God, right? We can commune with Christ daily, right? He has died for us. He prays for us. He wants us to come before him each and every day. So, so here, here's David and his, his greatest fear, his greatest despair and heartache is that God would be far from him. To, for God to feel far from him overwhelms him with depression and despair, so I just want to ask you this morning, if you would, would you notice, would you notice if God was far from you? Do you take time to commune with God through his word and through prayer each day in such a way that if, if you felt he was distant from you, it would be devastating to your soul? See, even a communication of, God, you feel far from me. I'm devastated by how far you, how far you feel from me is a declaration that we want God to be near You see, David loves the Lord so much that he is terrified and agonizes when he feels God is not near. Therefore, even an honest expression of your heartache before the Lord when he feels distant from you is an act of praise because you're acknowledging that you want him more than anything in the world. So be honest. Just be honest with God about the despair of your soul. And then secondly, ask for eyes of hope. Ask for eyes of hope. Now, that may sound like an odd thing, but it's exactly what David does. Look there with me at verses three and four. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. David is asking God, pleading with God to hear his cries, to consider what he is saying to him. And ultimately what he asked God to do is to light up his eyes. Remember, this is poetic language. And what David is referencing is, is the look in the eyes that we are all familiar with. Right? You can come up on someone, and in a brief conversation with them, you can see in their eyes what's going on in their soul. Right? The agony, the despair, the sadness, the sorrow. You can see it in their eyes. And David is saying to God, light up my eyes. Give me hope once more. Right? We, we know this is what David meant because in Psalm 38.10, he uses the same language. And this is what he says in Psalm 38.10. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it has also gone. He just looks downcast. And David is saying, I don't want to feel that way anymore. I don't want to be filled with that despair. Light up my eyes again, Father. Give me hope. He is simply calling on God to supernaturally lift his spirits and give him hope once more. That's what he's asking God to do in verses three and four. He is trusting that God can supernaturally do such a thing. But notice with me that here, at least here in verses three and four, David is not asking God to change his circumstances. Now, I'm not saying David didn't want his circumstances to change, but that's not the concern of his heart in these verses. 
What he is saying is, even in my circumstances, God, won't you lift up my eyes? Won't you light up my eyes? Won't you give me hope even here in these moments of darkness? He's asking God to shine light into the darkness of his soul. Why? Well, he gives us three reasons in verses 3 and 4. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. says, God, I'm, 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 I, feel, I feel like I'm on the verge of dying. I'm so overwhelmed with despair. Please rescue me from this darkness. Light up my eyes. But then the next two statements are fascinating to me, right? Light up my eyes, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Now, what is he getting at here when he relates the need for his eyes to be lightened, for his to be given eyes of hope? How is that connected to what's going on with his enemies and not letting his enemies say, I've prevailed over him? Well, it seems that David doesn't want his enemies to have the pleasure of seeing the king of Jerusalem, right? God's chosen king. He doesn't want his enemies to have the pleasure of seeing the king of Jerusalem in despair and sorrow because of their actions. He doesn't want them to be filled with pride because they were able to cause doubt to rise in the heart of the king, right? The king that God had put on the throne. He didn't want them to have that that pleasure, that opportunity to think that way about him. He doesn't want his enemies to say, look, what we have done has caused even the king of Jerusalem to shake and to be in despair. He doesn't trust in God anymore. You see, this is ultimately for David about the glory of God. He wants instead the enemies to see a man who has a steadfast, unshakable confidence in the promises of God. And so he's pleading with God to light up his eyes so that his enemies will not rejoice in his downfall, the downfall of his heart. That they will not rejoice because he seems shaken in this moment of despair. Look, we can learn from the motivation of this prayer in our own lives as well. Right When we ask God to, as we ought to, to light up our eyes, to, to give us eyes of hope, to remind us that we can be filled with joy because of what God has done, when we ask him to give us eyes of hope, we should do so so that the world will see us standing firm in unshakable joy in Jesus, even in the midst of our suffering. Right, That's a testimony to the glory of Christ when God accomplishes that in us, right? When we don't allow Satan or those who stand against us to have a moment of rejoicing or pleasure and thinking that they have somehow gained a victory by causing us to compromise our hope and confidence in our Redeemer. You see, we can root our prayers when we ask for eyes of hope in the glory and in the majesty of our Savior because God is glorified in us, right? He's glorified in us when the world sees us, right, rejoicing in Him, even in the midst of our trials, even in the midst of our suffering. We glorify Christ by having an unshakable joy and confidence in Him. In other words, when we cry out as David does for eyes of hope, that God will hear us and consider us. It's not that we are ends in ourselves, but may it also be for the glory of God, that Christ may be magnified and exalted in our lives. So when we are in the depths of darkness and despair, we can bring that with honesty before the Lord. We can tell him what we are struggling with. We can tell him how we feel. Then we can ask him to be glorified in us by lifting up our eyes and restoring hope to our soul so that the watching world can see a supernatural confidence that we have in the promises of God over our lives and in our Redeemer, even when tragedy and heartache and heartache rain down over us. So to move from despair to hope, we need to be honest with God. We need to ask Him to give us eyes of hope. But we also, and perhaps most importantly, must remember 
God's character. We must remember his character. Look there with me at verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Something significant happens here in verse 5. David turns a corner. We see that even with the conjunction, right? The word but there at the beginning of verse 5. Something has changed in David. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. He is now declaring his confidence in God's character. But let me, let me just pause here and say that this is so important. Psalm 13 is a poem that can be read in well less than five minutes. All right, but that, that does not mean that you're in sin or doing something wrong if it takes you longer than five minutes to get to verse five in your agony and despair. In other words, I don't want you to think I'm offering some quick fix this morning, right? If you go home and go through these steps in five minutes, then all's going to be good and you're going to be overwhelmed with joy and coming out of sorrow. That, that's not what I'm saying here in Psalm 13. Right, for David, this is a prayer. This is a summary of, of a long season of his life and out of which God seems to have lifted him from despair to hope. But there may be a period of wrestling that needs to take place in your heart and in your soul before you come out on this side of things. In other words, I don't want to come across as trite. This isn't a magic formula, but it is a roadmap. And perhaps a roadmap is the best way to think of this, right? If you are heading to a destination and you have a map in your hands and you're looking at it, you can measure the distance with, right, with your fingers. Right? It's only that far. But that doesn't mean you just got to kind of take a little step and you're where you've got to go, right? It's, it's a roadmap. It's saying this, this is how you get there, but it's going to take some time to get to the destination. And so it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we sit down and pray and in one day, in five minutes, it all is going to be better. But over time... This is what God can do in your heart as you call out to him day after day, week after week, moment after moment. And in the end, that roadmap says to us, one of the most important steps we can take in moving toward hope out of our despair is to remember the character of God, to remember that he is a God of steadfast love. That means consistent, never-ending, unshakable love toward you. Listen, this is why your feelings, my feelings, are so untrustworthy. Our feelings are simply not trustworthy. You may feel abandoned by God, but in Christ, you are never abandoned by God. Never. No matter how you feel, he said, what, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said to the disciples and to us, I will be with you always. For how long? To the end of the age. And so when we are struggling with our feelings, what we must do is reach toward truth to remember who God is. Now, how do we do that, right? When you're in a place of overwhelming sorrow and agony, how do you grasp and remember the steadfast love of the Lord in those moments? Right? How do you bring your heart to rejoice in his salvation, to remember who he is and what he has done? Well, there's only really one certain way to see to it that you're ready and equipped to take that step in the midst of your sorrow and suffering. And that is you need to start now filling your heart and mind with the truth of God's word. The more you know of God's word, the more you know who he is. The more you know of God's word, the more you know of his steadfast love. And the more you know him, the more you see his character, then the more you will see the story of his steadfast love plastered 
all over the pages of Scripture so that even when you can't see it in your own life, even when your feelings are leading you astray to think you have been abandoned, what you can do is you can go back and you can look at it and you can recall thousands of years of history where God never failed his people. Not once, not a single time, as Joshua says about God, he says, you did not let your promises fall to the ground. You kept every single one of them. Right, we can look as God, generation after generation after generation, sustained the offspring of Eve, sustained the offspring of Abraham, sustained the offspring of David, all to get to the day when he would bring King Jesus, the divine Son of God, the Son of David, into this world. And what we see on display is God's faithful and steadfast love that he sent his divine, eternal Son to take on flesh and to dwell among us and to live a perfect, righteous, sinless life in your place, and to willingly lay down his life on the cross, taking the wrath of God the Father in your place so that you would not have to face the wrath and condemnation we all deserve. He has done that for you. And so when your feelings make you want to question God's faithfulness or question his goodness, what you must do is reach to the depths of your soul and remember what you have read in God's word and know that your feelings are lying to you. And that God's word stands true. This is something that's often called, and I think it's a helpful concept, preaching the gospel to yourself. Every day, preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself, remind you that God sent his son to die for you, to redeem you, to adopt you as his own, to deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's why Romans 8.32 says to us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, right? The point of Romans 8.32 is if he has given you the divine son of God and he has laid down his life for you on the cross, do you really think he's going to keep any good thing from you? No, he will not. Look, this is why in this church, by God's grace, we relentlessly, as your elders, encourage you to have a Bible reading plan. It's not because we want to lord it over you. It's not because we want you to be checking boxes. It's not because we want to bind your conscience. It's because we want your heart and mind to be filled with the evidence of the steadfast love of the Lord so that when the darkness comes, you'll be ready and the truth of God's word will be there stored in your soul. It's also why we will never grow tired, by God's grace, Lord willing, why we will never grow tired in this church of rehearsing the good news of the gospel. While Lord willing, every week we'll, we will remind ourselves that God, as I just rehearsed, sent the eternal divine Son of God to take on flesh and to live a righteous life in place of our wicked, evil lives and to die on the cross in our place. Every week we'll, we will preach this gospel to ourselves. We will preach this gospel to each other. So that when the darkness comes, we will be ready to turn the corner and in verse 5, be ready to say with verse 5, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall re rejoice in your salvation. We must remember God's character when our feelings want to lead us astray and know that God has never failed his people and he never will. And he sent his son to prove it, to live and to die in your place. So we must be honest with God. We must ask for eyes of hope, we need to remember God's character. And finally, we must declare his goodness. We must declare his goodness. Look, 
Verse 6 represents a significant shift in this psalm in many ways. And the first five verses, David has been talking to God the entire time. He's been talking to God. He's been addressing God. But then something different happens in verse 6, right? Do you notice this? He's no longer talking to God. He's talking about God. Verse 6, he says, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Right? It's almost as if we could picture it. It's like David is on his hands and knees bearing his soul to God. Right? He is crying and weeping and calling out to God. And he turns this corner in his heart and soul. And he says, but I'm going to remember who you are. I'm going to remember your steadfast love. And he gets up. And it's almost as if he's, as he's wiping his tears away, he just says, I'm going to sing to the Lord. Because even though I don't feel it right now, I know that he has dealt bountifully with me. He's been kind to me. Even though I don't feel it right now in this moment, I know it to be true. And so all I can do is sing. Right? What a, what a transformation. From God, are you going to forget me forever? To I'll sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Look, we can at any moment in our lives, even in the darkest of days, declare God's goodness. Because even in the darkest of our days, this truth still remains. Christ has died for you. He has redeemed you. He has adopted you as his child. He will never leave you or forsake you. He is sitting at the Father's hand right now, this very moment, interceding for you. And he will keep you to the very last day. And so what a privilege it is to do what the psalmist calls us to do. Because right after I pray, we're going to sing to the Lord. Because he's been good to us. And he has dealt bountifully with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Father, there are probably people in this room who relate to this psalm in deeper ways than others this morning because this sorrow and despair is so real for them in these days and in these moments. So Father, I pray that you would light up their eyes this morning, that you would give them eyes of hope, that you would raise up their hearts. And even as we sing together, it's why you've called us to sing as your people. We don't sing just for ourselves. We don't sing just to you, but we sing to each other. And so I pray that our voices will be an encouragement to every heart in this room. And Father, may you fill us with joy this morning as we respond in song to who you are and what you have done, that you have dealt bountifully with us. So Father, what a privilege it is to sing of your goodness to us this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.